Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. So that brings us to step two. You know, we just, uh, we prepared ourselves in those ways. We brought people around. We cared for ourselves physically. We, we had some idea of what to expect of ourselves and our spouse and sex. And okay, I've done what I can do to prepare. Um, what is step two? Step two is to acknowledge the specific history and realness of my suffering. And admittedly, this is something that we want to avoid. Uh, Mark Lassar says, A spouse may be the last one to accept this evidence. A part of them doesn't want the pain of accepting the truth. The spouse may even become involved in elaborate explanations of why it can't be true. You may have heard the phrase, The family is the last to know. Families often aren't the last to know. But they may be the last to accept the facts. And we say here, step two is an incredibly painful step. And I think it's at this point that we can begin to gain an appreciation for that kind of fantasy reality that our spouse has been living in for a period of time. Because it's at this moment that we really want to escape into one of those two. In the same way that pornography or this adultery relationship was just this fantasy, fake world that they could go into and come out of. At this point, when we are getting ready to face this, we, we want a world like that. Uh, now, Doug Rosen now, uh, he says, A hurting, motivated wife came to me for counseling and said she had practiced submission, hoping uh, to help her husband make some needed changes. Again, this is in the case of adultery here. He says, I replied, Uh, that submission was not God's tool for accomplishing change. Confrontation was what was was the needed skill. She needed to assertively confront her husband, not angrily, but rather with great patience and careful instruction. Now, Doug Rosen now, he is not a nuthetic counselor. Uh, Nuthetic just being a Greek word that means confrontation. Uh, A model of counseling that relies upon this kind of confrontive interaction as uh, one of its primary modes of interaction. Uh, but what he is saying is that if your spouse is being unfaithful, that and you know that, and they are not acknowledging it, then, then submission is not necessarily the place for us to start. 1 Peter 3, 1-6, through 6, that may be where we end up. When we get to step seven in this process, we're going to come to a point where we're faced with some decisions based on how our spouse does or doesn't respond that, that we're, going to, we're going to have to make that kind of decision. But at this point, that if there's things that just don't add up, if there's a receipt for a hotel room, if there are uh, inappropriate emails from somebody from work, if there are messages that are being left on the machine that, that just don't sound right, That is not a time for submission. That is a time to address what is going on. Now, I'm going to assume for the moment that your spouse 
is going along with the false love study. It's at this point in step two of their material that they will do uh, what is called a full disclosure. And in this, in step two here, we're going to answer uh, five questions. And the first of those is, what should I ask and how should I ask it? And when your spouse does this full disclosure, most of what you should want to know should come from that full disclosure. I can't tell you the number of times in my office where one spouse has asked the other, is there anything else I need to know? If there is, tell me now. I want to know it now. I feel like right now I'm overwhelmed enough. Now is the time to tell me. And they say, no, there's nothing else you need to know. I turn to them. And I reinforce, this is the time to tell them. I can't tell you the number of times I've just heard the exchange that you two gave me. Inevitably, something's going to come up later. Is it there? And they say no. And sometimes I think it's sincere. Sometimes I think they believe they have just said the worst. And so because they have said the worst by nothing more, they just mean nothing greater. And at times, it's not sincere. And so what we tried to do in the false love study is to give an outline of what a confession like that would look like. Several pages of the kinds of questions that can be gone through. So it's not this generic, arbitrary, in the moment, is there anything else you need to tell me? Can't think of anything. But that there is something where that can be a directed, reflective, I have thought about this outside of your presence with something very structured to help me there. Now, what do I do with what I hear? I would say at first, listen, and then talk to God about what you've heard. I would say talk to God before you try to talk to your spouse. Just because there's going to be so much running through your mind. But then after you've had a moment to to just process that before God, and moment probably is not measured in minutes, but more like hours or a couple of days, uh, then after that full disclosure, you're going to want to come back and ask some questions. Now, the most natural way for these questions to come up is like popcorn. Uh, Just a question here and there, just as it comes up, because, again, this is going through my head chaotically. The problem with popcorn questions is that they get popcorn answers. The answers are just as disconnected as the questions were. And it begins to feel like none of this is making sense. And so my advice to you is to prepare your questions in some kind of organized way. Uh, You may prepare them based upon uh, the disclosure outline. And that disclosure outline that we give in chapter 2 of the false love material is just based upon the progression of sexual sin. And you may ask your questions with that. Um, You may ask your questions on the basis of the history of the marriage. You may go back to the dating relationship and move forward and just organize your questions chronologically based upon the history of the marriage. Because one of the things that we're going to see in chapter 4 of this material is that putting your story back together is an important part of what needs to be done. Maybe you ask the questions about certain subject areas. I asked certain questions about what was going on at work and certain questions about the lies that you told me and certain questions about money. Maybe you ask the questions about uh, just the dominant emotions that you feel. 
Here are questions about things that make me angry. Here are questions about things that make me fearful. Here are questions about things that make me sad. And that can be a way just for you to begin to practice a level of emotional honesty that can be very difficult when things are this shocking. But even when we get to this full disclosure and you ask your questions and it's not popcorn but there's some kind of structure to that, there is one question that is going to come up again and again and again. Why? Why did you do this? Why wasn't I enough? Why? Why? And my answer here, I wish I could give more of an answer. But I will simply say, I do not believe there is a satisfying answer to that question. Uh, And the reason being is that the level of your pain will always be greater than the level of explanation. I'm sorry, the level of your pain will always be greater than your level of the explanation. Let me illustrate that for you with a kind of um, awkward story for a moment. Uh, When I was in high school, right after my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, uh, on both occasions, it was around that third week of July, I went into the hospital with major stomach pain. Uh, the kind of pain where they take you straight to the ER, they run blood work, and they found my white blood cell count to be between 18 and 21,000. Now, your white blood cell count should be between 5 and 7. They said, we've got cancer patients who don't have that high of a white blood cell count. We're taking you in. Both times, they took me in for an entire week. Uh, they fed me a bowl of jello over those entire weeks. They gave me all kinds of medicines. They stuck things where they didn't belong. And at the end of that time, both weeks, they said, you're healthy as a horse. You can go home. The second time, I was coming out from under the anesthesia uh, from the last test that they ran. My mother was there at my bedside, and she was the one who looked at me and said, good news. They said, you're fine. You, You were just constipated. It's time to go home. My level of pain was greater than the level of explanation. It may have been the wearing off of the medicines. I don't know what it was. I just remember I was in my gown. I grabbed my IV machine and I went hunting for a doctor. I don't know what people behind me were seeing because I was just... But I wanted a doctor because the level of my pain did not match the level of my explanation. Somebody was going to tell me something because what they just told me wasn't it. It didn't matter if it was true. It didn't matter how many tests they had run, that they had run dye through my body to make sure my organs weren't facing that way when I was facing this way. It didn't match up. The pain was greater than the explanation. And we will come back to this why question several times, but I will simply say at no point do I anticipate that we will get to the point where the explanation matches the pain. And that will be part of the discomfort uh, where uh, that is probably one of the the more difficult parts of this recovery uh, for most people who have experienced infidelity. Uh, There's a section in there about do I investigate. Uh, If your spouse is not cooperating with the process, I would encourage you to look at that. Uh, Stephanie Carnes, she says, no matter how many details you know about your partner's acting out, the ultimate choice to change Uh, His behavior lies with him or her, not with you. Having more information won't give you more control. 
Uh, on the contrary, sometimes too much information can cause you additional problems. You may end up assessing even more about your partner's behavior. The formal disclosure may take up to two hours or more, but many couples consider this session to be the turning point in their relationships, an opportunity to establish a healthier marriage. And this is when we begin to talk about a full disclosure, getting this information, that information is going to help, but that information is not going to allow us to control the information. I'm sorry, to control the situation. And that is one of the more tempting faults that we get into in the midst of this situation because we just want some way to make sure that we're not going to be hurt like this again. Now, she says that full disclosure can be a fairly long time. Again, depending on the duration of the sin that's there. Uh, But what she says about that being a turning point, I would absolutely echo. And and I want to hit a few of our other questions here. What, What benefits do I gain from this information? If I'm going to hear it and it's going to be this hard, what do I get out of it? One, uh, I get clarity about the situation. My imagination can create hundreds of worst case scenarios. And when I have the truth, it lets me quit creating worst case scenarios. Secondly, it validates that I'm not crazy. Because chances are, there's been lies for a very long time where I've been trying to be convinced that things aren't as they were. And I begin to wonder, is it me? Do I just not get it? It allows me to evaluate my spouse's commitment to the marriage. At this point, I would say the number one measure of your spouse's commitment is their honesty. A point that we made in the false love material is that you will never be more pure than you are honest. And you will be honest before you are pure. And so the first thing that we are looking for is honesty. And then finally, it gives you the information that you need to make decisions in the future. Now what does my spouse gain from this disclosure? This isn't a punitive exercise. We're not saying, you've been being bad, and by golly, you're going to give me the information that I want. I don't care how uncomfortable it makes. I hope it makes you uncomfortable, because this isn't any fun for me either. It's not a punitive thing. Um, It benefits them by one, it's an end to their denial and living in their fantasy reality. Truth makes their fantasy world fall apart. That is a blessing to them, even if it's a painful one. And secondly, it's a chance for them to be truly known. Because part of what begins to go through somebody's mind when they're in sexual sin is if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. You wouldn't take me back. This would be irreparable. And all of that is used as a push away. As a reason why, yeah, I have to keep doing what I'm doing. I have to keep lying. Now, this is part of the reason why in their material, we ask them to disclose not just to you, but to a couple of other key people in their life. Because your response is probably not going to be able to be the most warm and welcoming right at that moment because it's hurtful. But to be able to be known is a benefit for your spouse. If you ask, what should I do with what I've learned? Um, Two quick points there. One, rest and recover. This is traumatic. 
don't feel like you've immediately got to do something because you've got this information. At every point in this process, when you get information, the alarms are going to be going off. Say, do something, do something, do something. And part of seeing how the gospel speaks to suffering is understanding God's patient with us in the midst of that, that we don't have to immediately do something. And so, recognizing that freedom that is there to rest for a moment is hugely important. And then, I would also say, what we do next is what all the other chapters ahead are about. And so, we're going to talk about lots of things that we do with it. Uh, At this point, just absorbing it and recognizing as what has happened is a huge part of what needs to be done. Now, um, Gary and Mona again. Uh, she talks, and this is, this is kind of an end of the journey, at least on acknowledging what has happened. Uh, she says, I knew the next question before I heard it. I knew the answer before he said it. There was no satisfaction here. No new information to be had. I searched for a way to elicit new information, trying to figure out what I need to know now. And then the thought crossed my mind. I don't care. But it wasn't the, I don't care because there's nothing in me to care with. Um, uh, This was the plain, I don't care to know any more thought because I had heard it all. Because I was bored. Um, Yet, Now, one of the things that we often do in the midst of these questions, and it's one of those things where we have to be able to know our own heart and see this pattern, is we begin to treat questions like a slot machine at Vegas. And we ask a question and we pull the lever and we're hoping for it to match up differently this time. Come on, no affair, no affair, no... And we keep asking a question, wanting it not to be the same. And part of this step of acknowledging the history and realness is we get to the point where we say, yes, this this is part of my story. I don't know what to do with it yet, but this is part of my story. And then finally from Winston Smith. He says, whether your marriage survives or not, you will have to forgive. At this point, I'll just give a word of foreshadowing here. Forgiveness is a step we will get to or as part of step seven. What we get to up until step seven is pre-forgiveness. And so when you see that word, don't feel a sense of pressure and say, I've got to do this right now. Um, But he says you will have to forgive and let go of the bitterness. Uh, But you can't forgive a wound that you haven't acknowledged. You won't even know what what has to be forgiven. You are laying a foundation for forgiveness by being honest about how you've been wounded. Um... For your marriage to become better, you have to talk about what happened and why. Again, what happened uh, is what we're looking at here. Uh, As a part of this chapter, you're going to see an evaluation that's about 113 questions long. Uh, It's evaluating the condition of the marriage before the sexual sin began. Now, at this point, I will simply reinforce the point that I made. This is not saying that the condition of the marriage caused the sin. Out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Our actions reveal our heart and nobody else's. And so we, we could not take responsibility for our spouse's sin even if we wanted to because it gave us a sense of control and safety. And so what are we doing with this evaluation? We're doing a couple of things. 
One, we're looking for destructive patterns that may be more significant than the sexual sin itself. Uh, If there are patterns of abuse or major control, things of that nature, then there may be things that are more problematic than the sexual sin itself. And sometimes we get in that case where we miss the forest for the trees. We see that one thing that is right here and we start trying to fix it and we miss the broader condition of what needs to be there. What we're also looking for is those things that fit the general pattern of sexual sin. Some people sin sexually because it gives them a sense of control. They are the central figure of the sin. And they like that. And so there may be control in other areas of the marriage that we need to address. Some people like sexual sin because it's an escape. Uh, And for them, there are other areas of neglect that if they're ever going to overcome the sexual sin and God make this marriage what it needs to be, that they're going to have to take responsibility for certain things. At this stage, we're merely trying to get the big picture of what that is. My caution to you here is not to confuse marital restoration and marital enrichment. Marital restoration are the things that we do to recover from a recover a marriage that has been significantly broken. This seminar and the false love seminar are marriage restoration events. Marriage enrichment events are things that we do to take a generally healthy marriage and make it better. When you confuse marital restoration and marital enrichment, you take all of the good things that you would do to bless your marriage and you make them porn prevention and you make them adultery prevention and they become sources of fear and bitterness and resentment instead of points of freedom and blessing and unity. And that's why we take and say, okay, we're going to deal with these two pieces separately. And what we're doing right now is marital restoration. There may be lots of other things that we find on this evaluation that we need to do as marital enrichment. And those are things that we can and should do after we get through the marital restoration. 